0: So uh, welcome everybody, welcome back. Uh, this is Bound to Context. I'm your host, Ryan Shriver, CTO of Singlestone. And today I have the pleasure of, of introducing one of my colleagues, Vida Williams, who's uh, head of our data and diversity. And so, Vida, welcome to the program.
1: Thanks, Ryan. I am so excited to be here and to interview with you. We have so many interesting conversations in the workplace. I can only you imagine do. what we can actually do here. here.
0: <laughs> we do i am getting excited so so, by to introduce uh tell, tell our folks a little bit about yourself
1: so i have been in the data space for about 25 years um and i will fully date myself because i actually have enjoyed the journey of being part of an industry that is 25 years old i mean of course we did a lot with data prior to that but we really formulated um, an entire industry over the past 25 years and if we think about who we are today and where we're trying to go, the fact that technology and and data became an industry that's undergirding this transformation or the opportunity to transform now is just amazing. Um, And so I've worked on big projects like international projects with Awesome Energy, I've worked in startups, I've worked in innovating new products with NPR um, and I think that breadth and scope of experience I have just um, reached that place in my career where I love it today the same way I loved it when I started it 25 years ago.
0: That's awesome. I mean, it's it's yep. true. have been we've been in, uh, in, in the industry about the same amount of time. I think we're in about a year or two of each other. Um, yeah, I've been here 25 <laughs> plus, and and, uh, and you're yeah. right. There's if you just keep your eyes open, there's so many new cool things that are happening sort of today um and so so tell tell our um, listeners a little bit about um, some of the current work um, that you're
1: doing well right now i um so on one hand i don't really get in the trenches like we used to so i kind of miss that a little yeah. bit you know um but i do take the role of um enterprise architect and designer and um you know expert machine learning designer to be able to look at um, large series data um, concepts and questions, and mentor and coach and design teams um, to, to really get to the outcome um, that we're driving towards. So, I still that is my typical work day um, in that space. And I would say that if you ask me where that intersects with the work that we are now doing in diversity. Ryan, you know, I've always said that it's our job to mitigate bias in technology and data like it is our job, you know, to look at something and say, I know you think the answer is going to be this, but perhaps we don't have all of the information at hand and to challenge ourselves to, to, to design around that. And so the work that we do um, both externally and internally at Single Stone around diversity comes from that same rigor. That I think we share when we think about the role of technology and data in mitigating those biases to begin with. So to me, it's all the same job. Um, it's, it's all just challenging people, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so when you get called in to sort of solve a problem, I mean, what, what's your starting point? Like, walk us through kind of the the value mental model of sort of breaking down a problem. <laughs> I am excited. This is going to be the best part of the whole thing.
1: here we go. I was to say cuz you see that mannequin back there, right? Yeah. So I actually that's a reflection of me. <laughs> <So> <laughs> where do I so where do I start? Um honestly, I always start every problem as it's a people problem. So it doesn't matter if I'm in banking, it doesn't matter if Know we're in the healthcare space. I always take the problem as though it's a people problem. So nine times out of ten, clients come to us and they tell me they have a data problem, right? And even if even if it's a foundation problem. So if we look at one of the clients where we're just really retooling their entire enterprise, the first question I asked them was: So, how do you source your financial data for Wall Street? And they're like oh, well, that sits in the finance department. I was like, oh, so who else has access to that data? And they're like, well, just the finance department. And I was like, oh, so does it match what's coming out of your marketing department? And the answer was, well, they don't share systems. That's a people problem. It's a systems problem, but it's a people problem because you have people who are both held accountable for ultimately those numbers, and yet they never see each other and talk to each other, and that is just simply illustrated in how the systems are shared or not shared it your systems should be facilitating the conversation between your peers it should be facilitating the conversation between your lines of businesses so that as you get up to that c-level all of the people have already had the conversation that goes into the final report that a chief financial officer is looking at Um, the other thing i do to start the conversation is I ask if there's anything that they would want to have an answer to that they don't have the information for. Hmm. And then that tells me kind of where they are on the maturity curve of evaluating their data for holistic data literacy. So that's where I start every question. question.
0: Interesting, interesting. Now well, it was, it, and to me, help me understand, help the listeners understand. So I obviously see silos of, of, in organizations. Is, is that something that, you know, what I don't know, is this, this does organizational structure, create the, the data structures under it, and that's why? Or was it, you know, how did these things emerge? It's, how did they, these silos get created over time? Um, how, yeah. how what, do, what are you learning on that?
1: So they usually, they usually again, people, um, you have different yeah, different lines of businesses will mature faster than another, right So in general, your fastest maturing data centers in any business is going to be finance and marketing huh. because they're gonna have to account and forecast what you know what their product spaces are and you know earnings and revenue and all of that stuff. So the rigor around financial data is going to be super super um, transparent. And these people have been dealing with numbers for a long time so you're just changing tooling really on the marketing side and data all of the innovation came from how do we get products into people's hands faster right so that's why when Google came along it was we can get the best ads to the people who are looking at our website because we have information about them Right? so that human behavior thing so those two industries are always going to go first the problem is Ryan that was to the detriment of operations because operations usually goes last because people don't think about their administrative capabilities to keep the business running as requiring the same investment that finance and marketing does and so that is always to the detriment of an enterprise. And that's where you wind up really getting the silos, because finance did their thing, marketing did their thing, but all of the other ancillary kind of supporting um, divisions did not. So when you get to 2020, you have you know, disparate data literacies and usually I'm called in to knit all of these disparate systems together. And it's difficult to do that when the people don't share the same level of understanding of the practice of data. So in very tactical terms, it's people. People don't share information and, and literacy.
0: They don't play well with each other. Um, so uh, it's like the kindergarten lesson, right? Uh, so, uh, exactly. <laughs> so So when you, when, you, when you come into these organizations, do you sense today, uh, maybe I'm interested how it, different is from when you started your career. Are these groups wanting to share information more today and usually they can't, or is it kind of like, no, this is, this is sort of my data. Um, you can't really have it. I mean, what's the, it has that shifted over time or has it still been, been sort of consistent?
1: Honestly, I'm gonna put that one back on us as the practitioners, Ryan, honestly. So I would say in the beginning, all, I would say for the first maybe 10 years of my career, I think we got off on being magic. It was easy to be magicians, right? And and so the work that we would do was was one. It was hard for us to find an English language to articulate it. So a lot of us who went on to you know create careers in um, the you know at like chief technology officer, you know this. It's because that you were able to translate these concepts and the execution of technology infrastructures into a language that you know, our CEOs can understand, our CMOs can understand, or our senior vice presidents can understand what they can expect after their investment and what the return on that investment is going to be in that infrastructure. So I would say early on, the practice of data was more kind of a magical assessment. Then we went into a period of time where everyone was spending money, not on the practice of data, but on the infrastructure to house the data. So you had huge sums of money being put in for Hadoop and these other large enterprise systems from an architecture perspective, but the companies didn't spend the equal amount of money ensuring that there was rigor around the transformation of the data into those centers and then the use cases coming out. So what I'm experiencing now is the fallout of those two things. And I would say that when we as practitioners walk into major enterprises today, the question is, I've got all this infrastructure and I've got all of this data and I still know nothing else. What do I do now? How do I put not just what is the outcome or what is the report VITA, but how can I create the practice of data for my, you know, CD, my my data practitioners so that we can continue to grow and evolve, you know, our data and our information and our decision-making and our products. It's a much more um, interdisciplinary place to be. And I will say that we went from being magicians to more just being alchemists. We're combining the rigor around architecture with, you know, the information flows that we're seeing with the systems and processes that people are engaging with data so that we can ensure that we're getting integrity on the outputs of data um, and so that that's the, the biggest I, I would say the journey that we went through and and where we are today and how we got here and so
0: it's, it's pretty fascinating you know, we have, we have different backgrounds um, you're on the on the data side me on the for sort of the application side but it's always interesting yeah to, just to hear different vantage points on this and so yeah. so what are those lessons that that you've learned that you're seeing organizations learn what are those lessons that you sort of um, bring bring to your new opportunities and new engagements
1: one is the rigor around data um okay. so i i lack data the practice of data data practitioners tend to fall especially when you start getting into an advanced analytics you tend to fall into one of two camps either you understand that the magic of deep analytics comes in wrangling the data, which is the most tedious part of it all. Mm -hmm. Like you either love it or you hate it as a data engineer. And I love wrangling data, right? So I fall squarely in that camp. I wanna make sure that the data that I have represents the largest cross section of whatever it is that we're analyzing as possible. Mm -hmm. The other side of that coin, though, which has merit, is the let the math do the math, people. They're like, no, we're going to write these algorithms, and it's going to spit the magic out of the data. I'm like, yeah. The lessons learned that I have derived from, from traversing and, and managing you know, teams that have people in both of these camps, Ryan, is that it takes both of these camps to make that work. I have to have people who fully believe that the data engineering happens at the foundational data nodes, and I have to have those people who believe and can drive algorithms you know, creatively and innovatively. What I don't accept on my teams, for Singlestone in particular, but I, I don't anywhere, are those who actually decide that the algorithm can live in a black box and they don't know what's in there. I don't, I don't do that because there's a lack of accountability. And I think when you're in the practice of data, you have full accountability of what those outcomes are going to be. Um, so that, that, would be, that would be my biggest lesson learned, is I think data practitioners should take a Hippocratic Oath to do no harm and be fully accountable for wow. the decisions that we make with this data.
0: Oh, wow. Yep. So, you know, it's, we've had some great conversations in the past, you know, come up as an application architect, you know, I always, uh, and this is going to sound flippant, you know, the database was just where I stored it until I needed it again. Like, I didn't think, I know. you know, it's so like, okay, I'll just stick it over yeah. there and I'll get it back. And so we, I didn't spend, you know, that wasn't the, on the forefront. Um, but then if you talk to a, a data yeah. person, it was, it's all about the data, you know, so we've always had this debate is about the application of the data, right? You need both. But depends on your background, you, you're going to come with a perspective and an opinion on that. Um, and yeah. you know, as I've learned, um, both talking with you and, and as we've evolved, I put a lot more emphasis on on the data that I had in the past, um, because you know, without that, I mean, the application is there to bring meaning to it or allow them to do something. Yeah. But it's ultimately the data, and that the data. and I think this is a term I remember hearing. The data is sort of a corporate asset and 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 it goes right. back to what you had talked about earlier it's not a marketing asset it's not a finances asset it's a corporate asset and and it's rarely yeah, corporate uh, it's assets. a lot of times it's untapped and so i think a lot of the work that you're okay. able to do is to go into there and have them see value and even new meaning and yeah. in information or data they've been captured perhaps for a long long time they just never know how to okay. sort of, to, to do with it
1: well especially because of the architecture you know and and year is so much better than I in terms of understanding the dynamics of creation of an architecture for flow through you know especially now that we're getting into like streaming data and stuff like that and so I rely on you know you like your guys um when I'm conceiving of an enterprise and I know what has to come through the pipe on the other side and i know how fast it has to come through the other side in order for us to be able because time is a component of the validity of data and people don't realize that so when we're storing data in these large volumes and it just continues to grow expansively most of that data has aged out of integrity we don't need it anymore right there's nothing we can do with it anymore so time age on data is super important to the integrity of the element and a lot of it has a lifespan before it just goes to archive and it's used on major trend analysis and historical analysis which is important but that's not what the majority of enterprises are looking for they're looking for real-time indication or they're looking for near-time prediction Um, and or they're looking for extreme innovation based on new insights that again are time bound. So when we're looking at architecture today, we're not just looking at huge, you know, oceans of data anymore. We're really looking at streams that connect puddles of data that have relevancy and that have time significance. And so I think more and more the architect the 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 cloud architect, you know, we're coming together to have to form tight teams again because the requirements that I have to you know, perform algorithms on this data is going to be dependent upon how quickly you can get it to me in what formats, et cetera. And so I think we're evolving again the way we started, which was we got to put all this data from this mainframe into a relational model so that we can get it hooked up to apps, right? Like, we both started there. Yeah,
0: yeah you're right, you're right, you're right
1: you know i think we're bouncing back i think the technology has changed and it's gotten so much more exciting but we're bouncing back to that requirement that we work more tightly together again and um i'm interested to see how we evolve like are we going to merge these two industries back into one with that requirement or are we going to be able to to maintain kind of the rigor in both and i don't know the answer to that it's just an exciting yeah
0: Well, it's interesting you mentioned pipes, and whenever I think of streaming data, I mean, if I close my eyes, I think of pipes with like water flowing through. I mean, it's, it's it, and, you know, on our last interview, we talked about like mental models and the importance of, of, of having that, you know. So so that's often the thing I've been challenged with the data space is, you know, where if I, so the name bound to context of the program comes from this concept called domain-driven design. And, and, and domain-driven design okay. it comes out of the object-oriented space. And essentially, I'll probably butcher it here, but the concept is it creates a ubiquitous language, a language that we technologists can share with you know the business and those. And really, domain-driven design is built on the practice of if you model the real-world domain and model the interactions and, and those sort of things, yes. that's where you start. And then eventually, you need to persist the data and, and those sort of things, But but it starts around there. And and having these um, these sort of domain driven designs, you start to rally around a mental model, a shared mental model. Um, how yes. do you, you know, how the mental models and and, and and how did that how does that play out in sort of, you know, so sort of your world? Are you also creating mental models? Are they shared? Are they visual? Um, oh
1: yeah. But, well, I would say we always had to. I remember my first project. We're pulling data out of the mainframe, and we're having to model it on a whiteboard to establish relationships, to establish keys, primary keys. Like, how does this, you know? And remember back then, it was like fourth normal form, so you couldn't have yeah, yeah, yeah. To the table and yeah. Yeah. back is now right, and so what i of like. And it was like, you know, and then you, you start loading the data, and then you start building views on top of that, right? Because now you have to put all this data back together. And fast forward to the place where I'm mentoring teams, because we started there. By the time I started putting teams together, I remember a, a young engineer of mine, I, was, I wrote it out on the whiteboard, because I'm old and I still do that, and I was like, this is what we're going to see, and here's the outcome. And this young man looked at me, Ryan, and he was like, you couldn't know the outcome of that. I was like, well. Uh, I don't know this. And he was like, no, you couldn't know the outcome of that. Did you already do the work? Are you just having us duplicate it? I was like, I don't, I don't waste my time. So I'm definitely not wasting your time. Um, that's gonna be the outcome. But you know what? How about now you do it all by yourself and come talk to me in the morning and tell me what the outcome is gonna be? So he comes in the next morning and he's like. I think you had to have done it first. I was like, no, 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 here's the difference, honey. And I really was, you know, making him feel small. And that was a bad management moment. But I was like, those of us that actually had to grow up and map volumes of data in our head can today still look at volumes of data and understand how the relationships articulate themselves. And what the trends are gonna be based on the elements that we're taking a gander at, so that we can forecast what our engineers are going to find on the other side. I was like, that was a skill set that we developed as journeyman learners when there were no big classes about data engineering, and we just had to learn by looking at the data. So I would say, Ryan, honestly, today there's probably an increasing rigor around mapping data and relationships and processes, because the process engineering is a critical part to understanding the flow of information, there's increased rigor at doing that. And at Single Stone, that's the standard that we've put in place for our engineering, that they be able to see the data They'd be able to map it so that when we turn it over to our app people, they know not just what the data dictionary looks like, but what the flow of that information looks like from a time, place, and process perspective. So that's an increasing rigor that we learned to do this work on 25 years ago that we're having to re-engage because we lost it when we were letting tools kind of do it for us.
0: Yes, exactly. yeah. no, I, I, it's it's interesting, the more we advance in technology, you know, something is gained, but there's something lost uh, uh, along the way. You know, it's funny, my, my first project out of college was um, using, um, Aquin, created Aukin's said scripts um, uh, to get data out of Lotus Notes databases and, and load it into, you know, some other, <laughs> I mean, the fact that it's Lotus Notes just dates me like like hell, right? This is the early 90s.
1: Look, but I had to learn COBOL. Uh, <laughs> My
0: first project, I had to learn oh, wow. COBOL. First. I managed to avoid COBOL. Luckily, the first project was an internet startup for me. For, my, for me, it was an internship internet startup, and it was actually Python. Um, but I wasn't very good at programming at that point yeah. in time. But I was setting up a web servers, um, NCSA web server, which preceded Apache, a lot of the early open source stuff. And I just got very lucky to land yeah. on the internet kind of in the mid 90s. And uh, Yeah. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's one out, right? There's still mainframes around to to, to your point and they're rock solid, steady, but (laughs) um, yeah. So, so who have been some of your influences along the way? Who who are some of the people that either influential to you in in your thinking or evolution, or um, can you share some of those with our listeners?
1: You know what, to be honest, one, I think mine go back a little bit further. Um, then I think I even have names for. Her. so historically speaking, you know I found Grace Hopper and I knew about you know um, the the mathematicians, you know the, the the women who were called the computers like mm-hmm. you know, now there's hidden figures and I have them yeah. all sitting up there actually that somebody bought for me. but being a woman in data, there weren't like I had personal mentors, but you know, I didn't have anybody that kind of looked like me and so I went looking for them you know and I I wanted to know kind of what my place was you know like it's one thing to be smart we're smart you know it's it's another thing however to walk into a room and them not think that you belong there and so I needed I needed uh, examples in history that no I'm not doing anything that hasn't already been done like there have already been women who have been amazing in this space and 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 so I, I think for me Ryan honestly because I, I thought about this question when you sent it over I think I don't have modern day kind of influencers I think I'm still stuck on the Hedy Lamars and the hidden figures and Going back even further to Natasha, right? I'm like, right? Ada Lovelace, Grace Hopper, I'm yeah. like, no, we started this data thing. Like, yeah. women have been instrumental in data. Like before data was a thing, when they called us computers, you know. And I had a T-shirt that that says "Call me a computer" on it at one point in time because I just thought that was amazing you know, to, to, to be able to, to synthesize information in such a way that people would actually give you a job that was called a computer. Yes. Um, and I, I think for me, it's, it's the opposite question. Like, can I be that person for people coming up? Can I be, um, can I have enough integrity about my job, about my craft, about how I talk about it, about being open and sharing it, about never hoarding it, but making sure that I share all my skill sets in a way that I get to be influential on in somebody else's life, because for me, it took such research to find someone that I could directly connect with. And that's not to say that I didn't have great male mentors, I did, yeah. they were yeah. awesome. But it is to say that my perspective was a little bit different and i I am choosing to be exactly that for other people because that's awesome
0: of it. that's awesome I mean i I went to Mary Washington and it was computer science and but Mary Washington was all, all girl school up until the early 70s and half the computer science department
1: that's true. were females
0: right and so Rita and Marsha and and I learned you know I was a young kid um and some of the other ones were guys of course but you know, that they had been, they were almost at retirement by the time I was in school, Um, and so they were really on kind of that early, you know, 50s, 60s sort of computer era, you know, that you mentioned. It was talked about in Hidden Figures, of course, you know, uh, Langley um, was down, you know, um, um, Tidewater here, and then up in Fredericksburg, um, there's Dahlgren, which is a naval place up there in the D.C., so there was a lot of interest in computing um, way back when, and then yeah. we're, 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 I want to say very prominent because I don't know about history to say that one, but certainly with me coming up through college, it was nice to see um, and have, have her in a, a department, like and have the students there um, were women as yeah.
1: well. I, that explains why I like you so much, by the way. Oh, um, <laughs> But you know what, Ryan, I didn't get my degree in computer science. I didn't take any math or rational oh, wow. stuff coming in through college, none. Now, I graduated high school, you know, winning the physics Olympics and then, you know, BC calculus. But when I went to college, I was in like, I'm not ever taking math again. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a storyteller. Like, I'm going to be all these other things. Um, And what I would say is that first EPA project gave me that vantage point that data is the rational storytelling. It is a new medium through which humans are telling their story again. And that enabled me to combine two things that I loved so much. And that was being able to rationally think through and build and create and do all that stuff at the same time being able to tell the story and making sure that it has integrity to the human element. So all of that appealed to me and that's what drove me. I just happen to be good at the the tools of technology and data. And so I'm able to use them like paint brushes on a canvas, right? So I'm able to say, okay, we're going to use Python for this or we're going to architect it this way because the people went in this way. So we got to get them back out that way. Um, and so that it has been interesting to me. Now, I did get training, you know, I took classes yeah. and I was an Oracle consultant, and, and they did that. But my actual college degree is all liberal arts. And I came into the data space being a tech writer who just happened to be really good at seeing information and got into an argument with the guy who I was supposed to be um, documenting his, you know, Diagram of data, and I was like, your foreign key is wrong. Literally, that was my start. That was my first statement. (laughs) I said your foreign key on that table is wrong. He was like, what? And I was like, it couldn't be that. If this information is true, that foreign key can't be that. It's going to wind up breaking apart further down. It was that night that I decided I was on the wrong side of the table, and that I should be a data engineer. And I went to the owner of the company and asked for a tech interview, and spent all weekend teaching myself SQL. So that I could pass I that tech
0: interview on Monday. That That's is awesome. how I got started. Isn't That's that crazy? awesome. That's a great story. So, <laughs> so I, I know that we both te- we both teach at VCU, and I know that you know. So, to, so tell me, how do you bring this into the classroom? Like, how do you and, and tell our listeners a little bit about the classes that you teach and how you bring some of this thinking in, into the classroom?
1: So, I have been part of um, VCU's Da Vinci Program for Innovation, um, which is the intersection of art and business and engineering. So that's right up my alley, as I just explained in that last story. And so for me, what I am really, really interested in is great ideas and how to execute on those ideas. So I teach um, rigor around innovation principles, which we've taught at the professional level, design thinking classes together. That's a critical component to building products from a human-centered perspective, a human-centric perspective, Um, but also idea validation. Not all ideas are executable. And, you know, how do you go through and design and validate on an idea? Well, what's interesting is that's the work that we do professionally anyway. So even if they shouldn't go forward with entrepreneurship, that's an invaluable lesson to have in problem solving when you get into the corporate world. You know, is to be able to validate an intuition or to validate you know, any type of hypothesis before you go forward with the client and produce on it. Um, I would say those are the two big themes I have um, that I teach from in, in various lessons. And then the last one that I really hit hard, and this is all in, you know, one, a series of one class at the graduate level and at the undergraduate level. Um, the third theme that I really hit home on is um, responsible contextualization. Just because you can doesn't mean that you should. So when you put this product out on the street, what is going to happen? And so we pilot it, you know, we take that product out and we let people try it. They call it customer discovery. But the other thing that I make them document is impact, impact from sourcing it, impact on making it, and then impact on using the product in the environment, you know, and and how do people respond to it, but also what is the net impact of it being out there. and that's important. It's important even on data driven spaces. Um, if we think about contact tracing in COVID-19, yeah. Yeah, yeah. we need it. We need it. Yeah. However, we fail to realize that same contact tracing technology is what we use to group criminalization. Yeah. And because we don't associate those two things, we can't legislate appropriately how we manage data so we need to have some really hard discussions and i try to get the kids to have those discussions at the university level so that when they are graduating and they're coming into the workforce they have all of that at top of mind that just because you can doesn't mean you should and then what is the impact of the the kens that you do
0: well, that's cool. I mean, it's fascinating. You know, the, when when I was coming of age and, and we were coming of age, you know, computers were those things that nerdy people did in basements of, of, of places. And it was like, you know, that that was that was it. Right. You know. And so I remember the first time I saw an advertisement on television with a website URL. And I was this is like, I want to say 96 or so. And I've been working in this startup. And I was like, yeah. Oh my gosh like you know and at some point and of course the whole the, the whole bubble you know came in the late 90s there but I think what's interesting today is whereas you think about what you just said and teaching kids about um, these things you know 20 25 years ago people didn't deal with data that much you know in 30 years it wasn't like but yeah. with apps and with social media and with all these sort of things data is so pervasive and sort of always around it's creating some of these new things that you know our generation didn't come up through and certainly our parents generation um, um didn't come up through yeah. um and it's interesting just to see like you know the for what's the good use out of it and then what's the the, the bad use out of it right it, it, and that's kind of to your point yeah. you can use it for some good on some impact but you can also take data and try to skew it in other ways and tell narratives which are maybe not true or, or try to skew the narrative right. but use data to kind kind of do it, and that's a bit of a it's a yep. real slippery slope. So,
1: wish that we taught data ethics and data with more rigor, not as a by the way. I would say that if if I am successful, you know, and being a champion of data, Ryan, like as we head out into the sunset of our careers, the one thing I want to be remembered for is declaring that data practitioners need to be accountable for the work that they do, and we dang near need to take a Hippocratic Oath to promise to do no harm. Because as we evolve this stuff, and we start resource balancing using AI and everything else, if we can't get a holistic impression of what a human looks like in data, we're going to leave a slew of us out of those equations, and we might just not get water. And yeah. that's inhumane. You know what I mean?
0: But tell you what, to wrap things up, I always end with a fun question. So what are you listening to?
1: So, yes. I discovered a Swedish band called Little Dragon that has okay. been my long ride. I mean, it's a fusion of pop and hip hop and world music. Um, I'm digging them. Like so, they're not. They're not Apple,
0: right? This is not this is not Apple or anything like that. This is a whole different Swedish (laughs) (laughs) combo.
1: No, they. (laughs) You're so silly. No, I love them, and I would say the other song that really has caught my attention right now is Childish Gambino's um, "Summer," not "Summertime." Is this summer song from 2019? Um, Because when you when you listen to the lyrics. It's really talking about like global warming, but it's such an amazing summertime tune. And so I feel like that song should have been released in 2020, not in 2019, given all All of the stuff we're going through right now. Um, So those are my music choices. But look, Little Dragons has an NPR Little Desk. Go listen to them. They're amazing.
0: So when we put this all out, Lindsay's going to help us get some links and and we'll, we'll drop in. Um, for our for our listeners, so uh, Vida, I tell you what, it's been fun awesome. hanging out, uh, and I thank you so much for coming Have on the program. Way. And uh, I love that mannequin over your hey, right Thanks short. for having I just, me. I, I've been I've been watching that thing. It's it's <laughs> awesome. I just get a smile every time I see it. So uh, <laughs> thanks for coming on, and um, we'll talk to you later. Take All care. Right.